Well, welcome everybody. If I haven't met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer, and we're kicking off a new sermon series. So, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates are walking down the, the street together, right? And Jeff, you know, Mr. Amazon, he drops a $100 bill on the ground. And, and Bill said, don't worry about it, man. And he goes, what do you mean? In the time that it'll take you to bend over and pick that up, that's about a second, you'll have lost money. If you do the math, Jeff, think about it. Every second of your life at your current net worth is worth $116. Now that's true. That didn't happen, but that is true. And what's unique about these two men who don't really have the, the need to pick up a $100 bill that they drop on the ground because their time is so valuable, because their net worth is so huge, is they have given away billions, not millions, billions of dollars. 28 billion, last I counted uh, accumulatively, has been given away from Bill Gates alone. Now, that's pretty incredible when you give away more money than everyone in this room will ever make in our combined income over the lifetime, and he's still giving. And, and people are kind of amazed by that. And yet, what's amazing to me is how un- moved we are at the generosity of God. That's what we're talking about in this series. Do you think that God is generous? And if so, how generous is God? And what are the implications of that level of generosity? We're going to be looking at Genesis today, and we're going to look at kind of an obvious part of the generosity of God, and then a less obvious one. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Genesis chapter 1 as we look at the generosity of of God. First, the generosity of God through creation. Here's how I would like us to, to phrase it today. Creation is a symphony of generosity composed by God and shared with people. If you read the early chapters of Genesis, it really reads like a symphony. There's movements, right? And, and there's just layers that God keeps adding to. And there's actually two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. One is thought to be a song in and of itself, the song of creation. And so in the original language, the Hebrew, we, it just, the, the lyrics just keep coming, and, and it's worshipful, and it really draws us in to think about the intentionality of God. What's fascinating is if you ever study other creation accounts in the ancient Near East or other parts of the world, other people groups besides the Israelites had creation accounts, how they think things got put together, and they're all violent, and they're all random. They're all like two gods were duking it out and one killed the other and then his guts exploded over here and something grew out of the guts and then a turtle got involved and you're like, wow, that's really gruesome. And we're the product of that. Thank you, how generous gods for making us that way. It's like, it reads more like a horror film, right? And then out of the landscape of messy, unintentional, not very beautiful creation accounts comes the creation account of the of the Israelites and what they believe about this one God. They say there's only one God, it's Yahweh, and he actually made us and everything we see, and it's good. In fact, you could say that it's good six times if you actually look at the text. Let's read Genesis 1:27 right after the it's good part. So God created mankind in his own image. That's, that's important, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them. This is so different than the other creation accounts. The other creation accounts, some of them will actually say God cursed people. No, in this one, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. This is contrasting other accounts too. In other accounts, it's all about God ruling over everybody. And here, it's an invitation for people to have an important partnership with God, ruling over the things that God made, every living creature that moves in the ground. Then God said, I give, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. So the first thing I'd like us to notice about this creation account is the gift of great beauty. God calls his creation good six times, actually five times, and then the sixth time he said, and it's very good when he, when he creates everything. Now, whether you believe in theistic evolution or a six-day creation, you got a spot here at Mercy Road Church. We don't nitpick about that. We do really believe, though, at the end of the day, that we're not an accident. God made all this beauty on purpose, and he made it to share with us, just like someone who would compose a beautiful symphony would never make that for no one else to hear. But what's even more fascinating is this symphony composer wrote the piece for us to play, and he even invites us to add to the beauty. I remember as a kid, I probably was 13 years old, I spent my summers in western Montana, Missoula, Montana, north of that, in fact, plains, wild horse plains, population like 10 people. And me and my grandpa took a two-hour pickup truck ride to the top of the tallest mountain in this valley. It was called Pat's Knob. And we had to get a chainsaw to cut the fallen trees. Like every few minutes, there'd be a tree in the logging path. And when we got to the top, I remember so vividly it felt like a good version of someone punching you in the stomach and getting the, the wind knocked out of you. My breath was taken away as I surveyed just in every direction the splendor. And I thought to myself, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I just want to stay in this moment forever. Now that is either an abundant gift from the creator to us, or it's just a really happy accident. But for those of you who really think it is a happy accident, let me just challenge you a little bit. You are a faith-filled person because it takes a lot of faith to believe that that beautiful vista just got thrown together by accident. And it doesn't have a purpose. When someone gives me a gift at Christmas and I'm, I'm married into a family system who's really good gift givers, I typically feel the intentionality. It's like they know what I want more than I know what I want, which is really unfortunate to be married into this system because I'm not very good at giving gifts. But have you ever been the recipient of a gift from someone who's really good at giving gifts? Like you know that they listened to that offhand comment you made about how you could use some new boots or whatever it was. And like they wrote that down six months ago and they got you the perfect one. And you're like, wow, thank you. 
What you don't say is, look at these amazing boots that I wanted that are perfectly my size and completely meet a need. I bet that was totally random and a, and a, and a coincidence and an accident. You, you can recognize a beautiful gift, can't you? And we see this in creation. The gift of great beauty is the first and obvious element there, but there's more the gift of great identity. Why do we have an obsession with Ancestry.com or what, what is the other one, 23 and me? Raise your hand if you've done one of those. I have. Yeah? Any, any surprises? Anyone related to anyone famous? Robert E. Lee is in my bloodline. I, most, I have experience with the South. It's like Waffle House. I, I didn't, you know, but <laughs> I wasn't that great of a soldier, but, you know, that's cool. We do that in part. We look at ancestry things because we all kind of have a curiosity, don't we? What if I am related to someone really special? What if I came from someone who was really noble? I mean, think of the obsession in Great Britain with the royals, right? What amount of money would the average... Britain uh, citizen pay if they could know and have evidence that they have royal blood in their veins. That would just light them up, wouldn't it? Like, oh my gosh, I'm a royal this whole time. I've been living like a pauper, but I'm a royal. This is going to sound like self-help dribble. It's not. Your parents might have made a mistake, and you might feel like you're a mistake. They might not have planned on you. But you are intentional, and you are royal. You're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. That's really important the next time you look in the mirror and you feel ugly and you, you start to criticize yourself or you look at kind of your, your half-hearted, half-successful attempt at holiness and you're not feeling like, like you're measuring up. All that may be true, but you're made in the image of God. God looks at you and says, it doesn't matter. You have my blood flowing through your veins. You see, someone could have a self-esteem issue and at the same time be a royal, be related to the people in Buckingham Palace. It wouldn't change the fact that they have royal blood in their veins. Maybe you've done something you feel ashamed of. Maybe you feel terrible about yourself. It doesn't actually change the fact that you're made in the image of God. This is why every single human being has an innate amount of value and worth. And before this creation narrative came on the scene and the words were uttered, I make you in my image, the world didn't even have vocabulary, didn't even have the common sense to think or suggest that we're made in, in the image of God. This language is what overturned slavery. This language is why people just will, will adopt other people who don't have an economic value. This language is why orphanages and hospitals started up in human history it's a truth, and it's a gift. God didn't need to make you royal. He didn't need to make you in his image, but you have the gift of an identity that is royal and is godly, and that's amazing. The gift of identity, yes, but there's a third gift in this, the gift of great responsibility. Have you ever kind of not liked your job? And it, Raise your hand if you've ever had a job that was just the worst, right? I used to change oil. I was no good at it. I'd get burns all over my forearms. I was the worst at it. 
I, I remember I was a security guard once at DSW Shoe Warehouse. I had to stand for 12 hours, a 12-hour shift, right? And you'd just sit there and you'd stare and you'd welcome people and you'd try to make sure that the people would, would leave with the same shoes they came in with, right? Because there's people that like to steal shoes at DSW Warehouse. They just kind of go in there and they'll all take these and they put their dirty shoes in the box and then they leave. That was my job. It was really, really boring. And I really felt as I stood there, like I didn't matter and I didn't have a purpose. And maybe that's how you feel in your job right now. The creation account begs to differ. The creation account says that God has actually given all of us a profound gift of cultivating, a calling. And even in the mundane and the ordinary things, even when we don't feel special, there's dignity and there's value in it. God didn't have to give us such a big role, but he said, I want you to have dominion over, to cultivate, to name all these plants and animals, to create systems and processes and all sorts of things to keep the music going, to add to the symphony. And he gave us an innate amount of creativity to, to make things better. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you've kind of found that intersection between how God wired you up and the opportunities he's made for you. And when you are working in that, you feel super alive. God wants that for every one of us. And he gave us this amazing gift of responsibility in the garden. He could have done it all for us. He could have written all the music and said, no, you just play what I've written. But he said, play what I've written and now write some more. God is incredibly generous. Now that's all the obvious stuff. Let's get to the less obvious stuff. Generosity and the curse, the so-called curse, I'm going to say. You know, you know how the story goes, the creation account. It's all good. It's all beautiful. You're made in God's image. You've got an awesome calling on your life. But then Adam and Eve, our ancestors, they chose what we would have chosen in their place. They rebelled. They said, I'm going to decide what's good and not so good. I'm not really going to trust you, God. I'm not going to rely on you. I'm going to rebel. And, and God told them in advance, don't do that. Like, you can do anything, but just don't eat from that tree. It's not ripe yet. You're not ready for it yet. You're not ready to di discern perfectly between good and evil. And the day you eat from it, surely you're going to bring death into the system. You're going to die. It's like a really good parent being like, please, honey, don't run out in the road. There's going to be such painful consequences if you do that. It's going to break my heart. It's going to break you. And we ran in the road, guys. And so what comes after that is curse language. And a lot of us have thought the whole time that God is like a really angry, out-of-control parent. And so let's read this uh, language in Genesis and get to the bottom of it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Satan, in the form of a serpent, really uh, tempts human beings into rebellion. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, which makes it seem like Prior to uh, this cursed are you part, the snake had arms. That'd be kind of creepy. Maybe it looked like an alligator. I don't know. Um, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pain and childbearing very severe, to which a lot of you ladies are like, yeah, I felt that part. 
Um, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is language that says, even on your best day in a marriage, there's going to be tension now. There's going to be challenges to which a lot of you can say, oh, I thought I was the only one. Good, it's in the Bible. Okay, to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So Adam, your wife now has some consequences for her rebellion. The, The thing that makes her incredibly unique that you could never do in a million years, namely bring forth another human being, talk about creative, that's going to be a lot more painful than it was intended to be for her. And the thing that I designed you to do, one of the things, work the ground and cultivate all this stuff, that's going to be way harder than it was before. In fact, you must understand that cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. This has implications far beyond farming and agriculture. This means every day you go to work and the juice isn't worth the squeeze sometimes and it's harder and the people are difficult and this Excel spreadsheet won't line up and your computer freezes or whatever it is, that's because of those thorns and thistles that are entered into the system because of our rebellion. There's going to be fruit, but it's going to be hard and sweaty and thorny and pokey By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. This sounds harsh, right? God is like, hey, here's all the consequences. All the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So, kind of a cheery text. Are there gifts involved in this curse language? That's what I want to convince you of, because I really believe there are. I believe that God, even in punishment, is more generous than we're even aware of, is more loving and kind and merciful than we've ever maybe considered. What gifts are embedded in the text that we just read? It's harder to see them. It's not like the creation account where it's like, obviously, beauty and identity and all this good stuff. The gift of protection. God curses the snake. He curses the ground. He never cursed Adam, and he never cursed Eve. I mean, think about, like, a really good parenting expert up here if they were giving you a seminar on parenting. This is exactly what they'd say, right? Be mad at the rebellion in your child and let them face certain consequences so that they understand the gravity of their actions, but don't use your anger to, to, to crush the child. Crush the rebellion in them, but not the child. Don't hurt the child. Make the consequences such that they will reform and and they'll step into a better way of living, right? And and it's like God says, I'm not going to curse you. He could have. In fact, the gods of these other creation accounts and these other worldviews, they would have just demolished anybody that would have stood in their way. But this God says, no, I am going to curse Satan and I'm going to curse the ground. And actually, it's not even me cursing the ground. It's you and your actions that have cursed the ground. And, and, and there's going to be some pain or a, a curse-like pain involved in childbirth and raising children. It's not going to be easy like it was. Fruit's not just going to appear. It's going to take work and sweat, but I'm not ultimately cursing you because you're made in my image and I love you. The gift of protection shows up in two other words, direction and correction. 
God protects us from ourselves by banishing us from Eden and giving us uh, a lifespan that does end. Imagine if he would have let us live eternally in a state of rebellion in a perfect place. There's a word for that. Psychologists would call that enabling, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he protects by directing and correcting. The gift of direction, God still calls people to bear his image, cultivate, and create. He doesn't take that away from us. He doesn't take our, our, our purpose away from us. I'm, I'm uh, in conversations with a friend of mine who's serving life in prison, and we write letters to each other and emails, and I visit him. One of the hardest things for him is the lack of meaningful work. Because when you're in prison for the rest of your life with no possibility of parole, that's kind of a tough one, huh? But in the last few years, we've encouraged him to get into this art class in the prison system, and he, he's a wonderful artist. And he's creating these amazing paintings that are just amazing. And, and I can almost tell when I talk to him with per perfect accuracy how much Jesse has been drawing and painting or how little. His hope seems to rise, ebb, and flow with that call. Prison is so difficult because it oftentimes will take away that wonderful, cultivated, creative calling in our life. And he finds these little glimpses, little moments, little outlets where he can still hold on to that. The fall, our rebellion, could have, maybe even should have taken away our call to create, our ability to keep writing the music. But God doesn't take that away. He said it's going to be harder. But I want to protect you from yourself, from this rebellion. And so I'm not going to punitively just take away the call on your life. It's just going to look different. It's just going to be harder. You're going to need to depend on me more. And beyond direction, he gives us the the gift of correction. The curse or the pain makes it harder for us to do, do it our own way. I remember as a kid, I, would, uh, I really wanted a dog when I was like 10. And I would walk around this little lake by our house. And there was a, a golden retriever named Shadow. And one day I noticed Shadow had a lampshade on his head. And I'm like, that, I'm not a dog expert, but that's super mean. Like, we should call PETA. Like, why would you put a lampshade on a dog's head? Like, it didn't seem very pleasant for Shadow. He just gave me this look like, get the lampshade off my head. Like, we're buddies. You give me treats. And I was like, I don't even know how they got it on your head. Like, I, what if your whole life you've been thinking God is super mad at you and he's cursed you in particular and he's withholding stuff from you and he's punitive and in reality, you're just dealing with a little bit of a lampshade on your head. You see, I learned that the owners put the lampshade because he had an infection and he was unable to do anything but chew at it. And if he didn't have something that would get him through the healing process, a few weeks of, of lampshade duty, he would make it worse and worse and worse and he'd get infected and dogs have even died from this. And once I found that out, the lampshade, as odd as it is to say, was reframed in my mind and it became a gift. What if God is more generous 
even in his punishment than you've ever considered, even in his correction? What if God has put certain things in the human experience to help us, even when it feels like it's harming us? Have you ever said to yourself, if I have this, if I have this relationship or achievement or experience or pleasure or new house or new whatever, then I'll be happy, and then you get it, and there's a letdown. Now, at that moment, and we've all experienced that, we have two choices. We can say, God has cursed them, cursed me. Um, I'll never be happy. Or we can say, what if God has created consequences due to our innate sin problem, our rebellion problem, our lack of depending on him that drive us towards greater trust and dependency on him that help us write better music. Maybe God allows this epic letdown experience that, that plagues all of us in every endeavor that we have in our life because he knows only that letdown will maybe draw us to him. Maybe some of the pain that God allowed you to go through, he's actually using to save you from yourself. I know that's hard to say. The last thing we want to think about is a God who would allow hard things to happen, and yet it is very obvious that he has allowed hard things to happen in our world. Does that mean that every horrific act of violence is God's intent? No, clearly in the garden when Satan was cursed because of his role in getting us to rebel against God, that wasn't God's design. We serve and worship a God who is so secure in who he is that he allows everyone else to be their own distinct person to make their own distinct choices. And when that happens in a world full of rebellion, it causes all kinds of problems. And yet even the problems God uses for our correction have you guys ever noticed how many guardrails there are on the road? I mean, there's like a ton of guardrails, right? Now, a guardrail essentially is meant to do two things, to protect you and to direct you. When you see it visually around a corner, you, you just kind of know as a driver, oh, that is there so that if I get a little too close, I bump into the guardrail instead of driving off a cliff and dying. Thank you. U.S. government for putting that there. What if the pain and, and so many of the things we experience that are less than ideal in life are actually heavenly, generous guardrails that God puts in our path to allow us to keep turning to him instead of turning to the things that will ultimately destroy us, drive us further from him? drive us further from the beautiful symphony of creation as he designed it, drive us further from our calling and our royal identity? What are you going through right now that you just wish wasn't there? And if you're honest, you're kind of mad that, that God would, would even allow that to be there. What if even in God's correction, even in the hard things, God is actually generous and loving, not punitive? Dr. Tom Bennett put it this way. God doesn't take away anything from Adam and Eve. Yes, it is harder to procure, but the imago Dei are still going to be in charge of cultivating the world. They still eat and drink and have shelter. They still have a divine calling. 
none of the generous provision of creation is taken away. And it is made more difficult to access. Even in punishment, God is more generous to us than we could even imagine. Now, I know some of you are like, kind of a convincing case, Mike, but I still feel that God could be more generous. Just like I feel that Warren Buffett and Bezo and, and Bill Gates, that's great. You give $28 billion, you, you still could be a little more generous, right? Some of you, you really just aren't sure if God really is generous. And in this series, for the next three weeks, we'll, I, I hope to change your mind on that. But here's how my mind is changed. If you were to ask me, what is the most valuable thing you have to give anybody? It would be without a doubt my child. The most generous gift I could give is the life of my child. And, and any, par any parent kind of senses that, right? And the story is not just that God gave us the beauty of creation and this royal identity and this amazing calling. And even in the curse, he never curses us and he, he, he still calls us in and he puts things in place that draws towards him. It's not just all that, it's that he did give the one thing that would be the hardest thing for you to give. God gave his only son for you and me. God gave his only son for you. If you're going through a really painful time right now and you don't understand how God would allow that, just consider this. Though we don't have all the answers, we at least know this. God allowed his son to go through everything you've gone through and worse. He must be motivated by something really spectacular. And Christ himself explains his motivation. He said he endured the cross for us. To bring the symphony back into order. To restore our calling. To remove the curse. Today we are going to conclude the service with baptism. So if God gave his son for us to live in our place, to die in our place, to rise again, and that son said, here's the one thing. You, you might ar argue and fight about a lot of stuff, but get this right. Go into all the nations and all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We should probably obey that. <laughs> we should probably go and baptize people. Now, we, we come from a lot of different traditions. There's ex-Lutherans, ex-Catholics, Covenant, Baptists, Pentecostals, non-denominational. We've got every stripe, you know. And some of you were baptized as babies, and, you, and, and that's how you baptize. You baptize infants. And some of you are like, no, that's not scriptural. We just baptize adults. And some of you are like me. I've been baptized as an infant and then later chose to reaffirm my baptismal vows as an adult. Wherever you're coming from, Know that at Mercy Road, we do baptize infants for those who are coming from that tradition, and we baptize adults. The majority of the people choose to be baptized as adults, people of an age where, where they can understand and make the choice themselves. But this is what baptism is. It's just responding to God's generosity, responding to the gift. I mean, if someone gave you an amazing gift, and you're like, cool. They'd be like, oh, all right. And God has given you everything, and me everything, the, the pulse, and the blood in our veins, the calling. We've talked about it. He's given you his son. And we're told the way to respond to that is to be baptized. It's saying, I do to Jesus like a wedding. It's saying, I want a relationship with this God who became flesh, who sent his son, 
to die in my place. It's a picture of a burial. Christ was buried for three days and rose again. That's why we hold you down for three full minutes in the water to symbolize each of the days. No, just kidding. Joking, joking, joking. Some of you, maybe. It's a picture of becoming a new person, Scripture says. Now, this is important to, to describe. That doesn't mean that the water is magical. I have a secret for you. This is Burnsville tap water. There's nothing magical about the water. It doesn't make you saved. It doesn't make you a Christian. Rather, it shows that you are saved. Not by anything you've done, but because someone gave you a gift. The thing about a gift is it's not a wage. You didn't earn it. You don't necessarily deserve it. You just receive it. It's kind of like the wedding ring of the Christian faith. When I got married in 2005, in many ways, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know what I was signing up for. I mean, I had a basic understanding. That's important, thinking about getting married, have a basic understanding. But it would take years for me to fully comprehend. And I'm still growing and learning and figuring it all out. Now, at times in the military, I had to take this wedding ring off for certain schools that don't let you wear wedding rings. Was I still married? Absolutely. Because the ring, you see, isn't what makes me married. It's that marriage certificate. It's that vow. It's those witnesses. It's God joining my wife, Erica, and I together. Baptism is not what makes you a Jesus follower. It's more like the wedding ring that shows you are a Jesus follower. It's saying publicly as an adult, I'm not ashamed to say I need a Savior.